Before Mass and the teaching, I spoke just a little bit about the history of the Mass that came through the Jewish tradition. And so in the homily, I'd just like to speak a little bit of what happened um, after Jesus rose and ascended back into heaven. How did the church, the history of the church, continue to develop at that time? So we begin first look at our great history and answer the question, what was a Mass like for the early church? We find that the first source of the history of the Mass is in the New Testament. We find that the root of the whole matter in the account of the Last Supper. So it was because our Lord had told us to do what he had done in memory of him that all of our liturgies exist in the first place. So remember, the word liturgy, as we heard last week, is the work of God that the people participate in. So God's people participating in God's work. We find this command of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 28. And as Bishop Robert Barron states, in order to appreciate these, perhaps our over-familiar words, we have to put ourselves in the thoughts and world of Jesus' first audience. As the apostles heard these extraordinary statements, they were undoubtedly hearing overtones and pieces from the scripture and liturgical tradition. Jesus was using the Passover supper to give a definitive interpretation to the actions that he would take the next day, which was on Good Friday, and his death on the cross. Next, the earliest Christians still had their Jewish traditions and customs. These customs can be found in and throughout the books of Acts, the letters of St. Paul to the early church. It can be found within the New Testament. The early church read readings from the holy books and said prayers, sang hymns, and broke bread together. So we look at the apostolic church, the church of the apostles. Immediately, the disciples of Jesus had a permanent influence on the Christian worship and liturgy. The synagogues first were used by the apostles, and the temple was still a point of reference. The apostolic church creates new forms of worship, namely baptism, which is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, breaking of the bread, various prayers. We have the anointing of the sick, the imposition of hands that confers the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, which Jesus gives the authority to the community of believers, which is the ordination rite, sacrament of holy orders. These liturgies were mostly celebrated in the homes and the catacombs, which were underground cemeteries of the early Christians, because the early church was under persecution by the Roman Empire. It's a very important point to remember that early church for the first 300 years was being persecuted. So much of the rituals were in homes or in private or in particular places um, that they worshiped. It was not necessarily yet a public worship. For the earliest writings of the Christian liturgy after the New Testament, we have the work titled The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, or famously known as the Didache, which you might have seen or read some from, which is the first century which contains two allusions to the Holy Eucharist. Chapter 14, we read that every Sunday of the Lord, having assembled together, we break bread and give thanks, having confessed your sins, that your sacrifice may be pure. From this, we have two conclusions of dogmatic importance, confession before communion, and that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. Thus, we know that the ritual itself was celebrated every Sunday 
that already its name is Thanksgiving, which is the Greek word for Eucharist. Other works, such as the first epistles of Clement to the Corinthians, as well as the epistle of Barnabas, the letters of St. Ignatius, all include descriptions of the various elements of our modern-day Mass. The Traditio Apostolica is another work of writing during this time that explains the order of ordaining bishops, fundamental structures of the Eucharistic prayers, and other parts of our Mass. And finally, St. Justin Martyr, which lived around the year of 155 AD, states, all who dwell in the city or the country gather in the same place. The memoirs of the apostles, which are the gospels, and the writings of the prophets are read, much at the same time, much as time permits. When the reader is finished, he presides over them. Then we all rise together and offers and challenges them to imitate these beautiful things in a homily. Then we all rise together and offer prayers for ourselves and for others, petitions, intercessions. Whether they may be, wherever they may be, so that we may be found righteous by our life and actions, faithful to the commandments, so as to obtain eternal salvation. When the prayers are concluded, we exchange the kiss of peace or a sign of peace. Then someone brings bread, a cup of water, and wine mixed together. And to him who presides over the brethren, he takes them, offers a praise and glory to the Father of the universe, through the name of the Son, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And for a considerable time, he gives thanks that we have judged worthily these gifts. When he has concluded the prayers of thanksgiving, all present give voice to an acclamation saying, Amen, which is the great amen we say at the end of the Eucharistic prayer. Then we who preside has given thanks to the people, have responded, those whom he has called deacons, give to those present the Eucharistic bread, wine and water, and they take them to those who are absent. So then brings us to the third century, which is the Edict of Milan, which changed worship in Christianity from being a church that was persecuted, so in private, to finally being tolerated by the Roman Empire. The Edict is a proclamation made by the Roman emperors, Constantine and Licentius, that permanently established religious toleration for Christianity within the Roman Empire. So at this time, as a result, was a new freedom of religious for Christians. Actually, buildings of Christian churches and basilicas were built. Latin became the universal language that unites all celebrations of importance to be called solemnities, and authority of the teaching for bishops and priests became more public. In other forms, the Eucharistic prayers developed in different parts of the empire. As Christianity began to spread, so did the forms of worship throughout the world with various different forms of liturgies and rites in which Christians took their local cultures and Christianized the mass with their own language and elements. So for example, we have various different liturgies as the Ambrosian Rite, Byzantine Rite, Orthodox, Anglican or Ordinarian Rite, and many more. So from the sixth century, Pope St. Gregory the Great is known for his reform of the liturgy and for strengthening respect for doctrine. Many of you might have heard of Gregorian chant, came from Pope St. Gregory the Great. In 1054, the church experienced the East and West Schism. More reforms of the liturgy continued hence as such a greater emphasis on the mystery, the clergy praying together and returning back to the tradition by reforming the Psalter for the Liturgy of the Hours. And we come to the 15th century, 
Council of Trent was a response to the Protestant Reformation, and thus more Reformed liturgies continued, such as the Reformation of the Breviary, the Roman Missal, which is we use still today. The early 20th century, a new reawakening of liturgical studies began with Pope Pius X, who reformed canon law and encouraged active participation amongst the laity. Even this time, it was encouraged to receive communion daily. The Second Vatican Council instituted new reforms in the sacred liturgy, which is a constitution of the sacred liturgy. Examples of renewals include using the vernacular language or translating the mass that was once always in Latin into the mother tongue of the countries across the world, providing principal directives on how to celebrate the mass. So therefore, even though they have been many changes, additions, subtractions, various local traditions that have been enculturated into the mass throughout the churches, the church will still continue. One thing remains the same, that the work of Jesus on behalf of the people still continues today, and that we can come to worship God as best as we can by giving thanks, offering sacrifice, and reverence to him. Just a quick thoughts on the readings that we heard today. As a priest, I have found it to be rather a blessing to celebrate one of my family's uh, funerals. My dad is the youngest of 12, so I've had a lot of aunt and uncles who have passed. And it's always interesting when you go to a family's funeral, at least for myself, you hear particular stories, particular things that maybe I had not known or particular things that were not told, or maybe particular things that my cousins, other aunt and uncles, maybe had not thought of sharing, or in some sense, revealing, or talking about. But many of them are very important to who that person was. You can only imagine, in some sense, the apostles, St. Peter, James, and John, finally being able to talk about the transfiguration, something that particularly took place in Jesus' life, and the opportunity um, that took place in some sense in the upper room, uh, uh, the particular conversations that took place after Jesus ascended into heaven. As the apostles began to talk about all their personal experiences that they had encountered with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as they shared, as they made those stories real, as they began to make more sense to them um, and to others whom they shared it to. So I kind of say this in a, in a sense during this particular season of Lent. What is God revealing to your heart in the private of your prayer, in the private of your almsgiving and fasting? What is coming up? In some sense, maybe those particular things aren't yet meant to be shared or talked about. Maybe they haven't quite made sense yet as we are not yet at Easter. How will, in some sense, you look back on this season of Lent and see how the Lord has been moving, revealing particular things in your own life? Maybe the invitation to die to self, as we heard in that first reading, the sense of obedience. How is there a desire to be obedient to God's will, to his plan for us? How is there also a sense of an opportunity to look for the light, 
Light can be seen, of course, in two different ways. In one sense, maybe the light that seemed to kind of blind the apostles and really made them afraid as they prostrated before Jesus when they saw this light and heard this voice. But there also can be a sense, too, of standing behind the light and the direction and clarity that it gives um, in our life. Imagine standing behind or with Jesus, allowing his light to illumine our future as we walk, as we're able to see God's plan and will for us, as we desire to be obedient specifically to him. How can you allow the light of Jesus Christ um, to enlighten your lens? Uh, to give you direction as we continue to journey towards um, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Saturday. There's a sense, too, an undertone in these particular readings of the realization of the suffering of the Messiah. I know many times in our lives, maybe we try to avoid suffering. Maybe right now there is some struggles going on with maybe your particular Lenten fasts, almsgiving, and prayer. Maybe you're grappling with really trying to be true to those particular things. Maybe really struggling with, in some sense, of dying to yourself. So I just want to lift that up, invite you to allow the Lord to bring light to some of those particular struggles. You might find yourself struggling against yourself, against the world, who maybe wants you to do particular things. Hopefully there is an invitation of a little of suffering and a dying to self, a desire to heal, desire to bring things to the light that maybe you have been hiding. Maybe the Lord wants you to reveal particular things that have happened in your past that maybe you didn't have a platform or a time to reveal them or to speak about them. The season of Lent is that opportunity to let those things come up, reveal them to the Lord, allow His light to shine in and through them. Renewal. So may this particular season of Lent continue to be a time of renewal. Uh, a time of realization of um, redemptive suffering. Allow the Lord to redeem the suffering that you might be struggling with as we continue to journey to the Lord. And just what beautiful inspiration and encouragement that we hear from St. Paul. If the Lord is with us, who can be against us? If you find particular things against you this season of Lent, if you find particular things that are in some sense, roadblocks are coming against you. Really want to encourage you to stop and to lift those things to the Lord, to reveal them to the Lord. Let him remove them. Don't try to remove them by yourself. If the Lord is with you, who can be against you? Hope the realization that you come to is nothing. We have the Lord's light and he will bring all things to understanding. Thank you for listening to Aggie Catholic Homilies. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Be sure to check out our sister podcast, Aggie Catholic Talks, to hear talks from Magnify, Catholicism 101, and more. Thanks, God bless, and gig'em.